companions. We help you discover your many layers. You peel your car, you wake up, with fresh eyes. Question life, question humanity, question society, but most of all, question yourself. I'm Taya Kasahara. Um, I use they them pronouns and I'm an opera singer, a theater creator and co-founder of Amplified Opera. So my very first question, how did you get into opera? Oh wow, yeah. Um, well, I was 15 years old and I went to this summer music camp at UBC, the University of British Columbia um, out in Vancouver and um, I was actually, it was, I was suggested to this camp by my band teacher and he said, why don't you check out a band workshop? And, you know, American Pie, the movie had just come out. So I was like, no, I'm not going to go do a band workshop. So I flipped over the brochure and it said vocal workshop. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Cause I always wanted to be in a rock band, but I never had that like rock voice. Um, it was like, I was singing in choirs and I had more of this classical thing. So I just tried it out and I saw like my first opera there, The Magic Flute on film, but we were down in their, their big uh, lecture hall. So it was on the big screen. And I like, got to hear opera singers for the first time live, you know, people doing their undergraduate and their master's degrees and other young aspiring singers. And I was just blown away by the magnitude of what the human voice can do, like this Olympic style singing and the culmination of so many different art forms coming together was just, it blew me away. So I was like, okay, I have to do this for the rest of my life <laughs> at age 50. And then, um, so a bit of context, where did you grow up? What was, what's your family like? Yeah, I grew, up, uh, I grew up um, out west. So outside of um, Vancouver, about an hour or so in the Fraser Valley and um, I come from uh, a mixed race. My father was born and raised in Japan and um, my parents met in Japan and then moved back here. Uh, my mother was born in Germany and immigrated as a child to Canada after the war with her family. And yeah, I have a brother. He still lives in Vancouver with his wife and his dog and he's doing well out there. So it's hard to see them because they're all out west um right because of kind of travel restrictions and physical distancing yeah do you um would you say that your family upbringing in some ways sort of influenced um the your decision to pursue opera um i don't think so like my family was always really supportive especially of my my musical endeavors um i played piano since i was like five years old and I had done some ORF music training like as a really small child. So like, I think I started maybe at age three or something. And there was definitely music in the home in terms of like played on a cassette tape or, or a record. Like we would hear classical music to old folk music like from the 60s and 70s or ABBA. Um, and sometimes I would hear Japanese folk music, but like no one was kind of musically inclined past like 
plunking out a, a melody on the piano. Interesting. So for, I think for many people, opera is just something that's super posh. It's like, it's, it's so far away. It's, it's super inaccessible. Like, I think if, if I wasn't in um, theater, with, with theater background in university, I probably wouldn't even bother to listen to or, or watch opera productions because it just, it's just something that's like, you know, in the back of your mind, it's something that's really expensive. It's something that's super high class. It's something that, you know, it's just not for me. And, and for you to make that decision to go into it, just, just because of the, the beauty of the art itself, I wonder what the journey was like for you. And if there were sort of like barriers to entry or, you know, the specific way of being in opera in that sort of social setting. Mm -hmm. I guess I never really reflected on that because I wasn't exposed to opera um, as a child as like this really posh thing. But now that I like look back on like how I was introduced to opera and how I continued my relationship with opera, it was kind of like, I don't know, almost like the back door, the stage door, you know, coming in through just for, for the, for the love of the art of it. Like I studied piano, right? It's like, so I'm doing piano classes, um, private piano classes as a kid. And then I got into band because there's a band in your school, like a concert band. So I was playing saxophone and then there was a choir. So it was just, I was lucky to have music education so accessible, like through my public school education. And then, um, yeah, I did this workshop just kind of randomly. I chose to do it and saw like real people who are not that much older than me, like maybe five to 10 years older than me, some, some a bit older, like doing it. And they were also real people. Like you would see them do it on the stage and then come off and be like, you know, friendly and, and easygoing. And, and so it didn't seem like something that I couldn't access because they weren't wearing gowns and they weren't wearing tuxes. And it wasn't like in this fancy theater. I hadn't seen opera like that before. Like it was just Bugs Bunny, you know, <laughs> what's up doc, that kind of stuff. Um, I had been to the symphony though. So I had seen musicals. I, I had been to the symphony. So I knew that like there was this, this elegance or this, this seriousness or this professionalism around it that you dress up when you go to this kind of thing, this concert, and you pay a lot of money for these tickets. Um, but it just felt like something that was in reach that I knew I, if I worked hard enough and I kept focusing on it, I could do that as well. Plus I loved it. It felt so good to do it. I saw, um, so I went on your website and I saw some of the, the videos of the performances and it's super different from the opera that I know of, the, the opera productions that I've seen in video. And it's, I don't know, it's like in a way how I think in, in London, the, the sort of theatre that's, that's challenging, breaking that, that gap with audience and trying to make it more accessible and more relatable to people's, you know, real people's stories. And it felt like that was what you were doing in your works as well. Can you can you explain more about your your opera, like the writing process, or you know what, how how you start the production, how you make one? Mm -hmm, sure. Um, well, I've never like fully composed my own opera. I've just been involved with some projects where um, I was able to create a role, for example. Or um, now with one of my projects, The Queen and Me. Um, it's definitely like a hybrid play of, of, of theater and of, and of uh, the classical works, the canonical works. Um, so, and that, I guess the Queen of Me is where I'll start. That was kind of like a point where I needed to break away from the tradition, from the canon, and from the, 
the poshness or the elitism that is that surrounds the art form that is the industry that is the the public that is the um, those people who are generally white who are generally um, you know middle to upper class of a, of a certain socio-economical class um, who are generally conservative who are generally um, heteronormative who engage with opera and I really needed to to break away from that and fully claim my own queer, biracial, genderqueer identity, and to comment on the many years that I really tried to fit that quote unquote like norm or standard of opera that, you know, most people would be like, oh, opera, it's so posh or it's so, you know, so inaccessible, that kind of thing. So that required a lot of conversation, a lot of writing, a lot of like truth telling and digging deep into, into me and unearthing that truth and then being able to find catharsis through, through the medium of theater and then through the medium of singing these canonic works in a different way and giving them a different life. Was it difficult to convey your message to that specific kind of audience? Because I'm, I don't, I mean, I don't know enough, but I imagine probably in terms of ideology or in terms of just exposure of reality, like it's such a, it's such a big gap in the difference in reality. Mm -hmm. You mean like the conventional audience? Yeah. Well, I haven't fully performed this piece like in full production or it, it was going to premiere um, mm -hmm. this upcoming season, but because of COVID-19, we're going to have to wait until theaters reopen before that full production. So I haven't been able to, to share it with um, say a more wide audience or a more mainstream opera audience. It's mostly been like some workshop performances with colleagues, with friends, with, with people say in the queer community, because I had, I had the fortune to perform it for the Queer Arts Festival last year in Vancouver. So you're gonna get a much more eclectic audience for something like this, that, it, that is a hybrid theater multidisciplinary piece. So it has been really affirming though to hear from my opera colleagues specifically who are say queer or trans or, or um, people of color to, to be like, wow, I saw myself in that, you know? So that's been really, um, encouraging for me to like know that this piece is important and that I do need to share it with more people than just quote unquote the choir you know preaching to the choir that yeah that more people really need to hear my message. Do you think the conventional sort of opera audience will be ready for a piece like that like this and also um, what what is it that draws this sort of audience to opera? <laughs> yeah well I don't know if they're going to be ready but I really hope that they come and I hope that they can honestly engage with with my content with my um breaking breaking from the norm um but I think whether they're ready or not they need to be ready you know mm -hmm. the the world has been changing um a lot and, and so, so much so recently, right? We've been having these conversations at a very like, um, very serious level, like especially on, on, a, on a large scale. So talking about systemic raci racism, systemic oppression, and how um, opera is, is an art form which exists in an industry or in a, 
in a place where it just keeps perpetuating colonialism, you know, and and oppressing certain individuals over others. So um, whether people are ready or not, it's coming. Yeah. And what was your other question? Sorry, I forgot. Um, what drew people? What what draws people into opera? So, like, in terms of the conventional opera audience, what is it in opera that draws them to it? I mean, is this is such a foreign world to me? So, I'm I'm trying to understand. Mm-hmm. I guess um, I don't know status, reputation, or a sort of association with that sort of high high society activity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, well, what is that's it probably. In there? it's probably part of it. It's probably, you know, something that is elite, something that they know that they can be um, in a social circle, which, which, um, uh, what is the word, which they, maybe they feel safe or being able to see their people who also look like them um, in that kind of social setting. Um, but I really hope what draws people to opera is is the power of what music can do you know through the human body and and that sometimes you need music to be able to con- convey emotion and message that goes deeper maybe on a deeper on an intellectual or conscious level that it has music has this power to permeate us so deeply and we can feel these vibrations we can we can feel, you know, like viscerally in our bodies and what actually like brings us to tears, you know, hearing something that is, that is, that's, a, that's an amazing power that I feel like music can do. And it can sweep us into some, some place that we're not even aware of, you know, subconsciously or unconsciously. Um, and maybe in realms of consciousness that we don't even really access as humans right now. Um, so I think that's what is so special about opera and that many people come together to do one thing or to put on one show or to be there all with each other. You know, the violins stroking their bows or their bows are stroking their instruments and everyone is holding their breath, you know, to hear that person sing or to hear a chorus sing. Like it's, it can be very special. It can be very special. So something that I really struggle with when I was doing theatre was the sense that, you know, we're making theatre productions and a lot of times it's the same kind of audience that comes to watch theatre. And I remember when I was back in university, um, we had this uh, guest speaker, he he was quite a well-known, um, well-established theatre set designer. And he said he would do these, you know, large-scale designs for theatre and then he would be invited for the premiere and then you go there and it's like you, you see that... Um, there are a lot of people in the audience who are there because it's it's sort of like a corporate event sort of thing where you are there and you're you're there with your clients or you know you because because of the sort of status that that it's associated with that it's sort of like the proper event to to be spending time with um, your client or for a company event and people just didn't want to be there and they were just looking at their watch the entire time trying to just get out of it and and what I, I think also like being in this sort of the arts, and I, I, I think I was really lucky to have been in Central St. Martins in London because my art school was, um, was really progressive. You know, we were talking about so many things, but then after leaving university, I realized how much of a bubble my, my circle was, you know, like you talk about um, 
LGBTQ plus rights and all of that stuff. And there it's like you, it's, it's the norm because, you know, you, you get into that sort of environment and everyone is free to express their identity. And immediately, even if you didn't know about this before, you learn because your friends will sort of, you know, converse with you, educate you, and then you are curious, you learn more, and then you realize like, okay, so this is what it is. This is like, this is what I need to do to be respectful. This is, this is what I need to learn more to understand identity. And then even, you know, like stuff, um, stuff like racial debates or, or gender debates, it's just after leaving that sort of bubble, I realized I guess how backwards a lot of different parts of society are in terms of these conversations Mm -hmm. and and it's really it's frustrating but it's I don't know I think it was also shocking to a certain level for myself that not more of society is aware about these things and and then to have the sort of awareness self-awareness I guess also to to be open and to listen because a lot of mm-hmm. times I feel like when, when you are in a position of minority, and I feel that with race, um, I felt that when I was in France, when you're a person of minority and a person of color and a woman on top of that and a young woman, it's like people don't really listen to what you have to say. And, and in the end, when you, when you try and speak out about, about certain things, the first thing they do is they, they shut you down or they, they get defensive or they say that you know, your experiences are not valid because you're just being oversensitive. And these are, it's, it's really, it's hurtful. But then what, what is the power of the arts to be able to challenge that, to be able to change that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those are really big questions. And, and yeah, it can be definitely frustrating, you know, when, when there is a change of environment, right? Or a change of community. Um, and you've lived in a lot of places too. So like, yeah, experiencing different cultures and, and xenophobia or just being shut down is really, is really frustrating. Um, I really believe though, that the power of the arts has to do more. Like, I think why, why people are drawn to the arts or drawn to theater or opera, music, ballet, all of it, that there, there is a freedom there. There is a, there is a connection there to something greater than you know our everyday existence that makes them feel good, that gives them catharsis, that gives them meaning, you know. And that connection and finding like like-minded people and to continue to make art, whatever whatever the medium might be, um, keeps us wanting to make more. But I think with with a lot of um, aspects of society, especially this very capitalistic perspective, um, many people can kind of lose sight of like, why, why humans exist, you know, why we're, why we're around. Is it to make money and, you know, to put food on the table and then to make more money, so, you know, for our children or for our children's children, or is it to, to experience new things in our life, you know, and, I feel like this idea of outreach or engagement, you know, with theater companies, especially the really, really large ones, right? Especially um, in opera and ballet, because these are the art forms that are are decreasing, they're declining, they're dying, quote unquote, so to speak, you know, and because they are so expensive to put on, um, that there is this, this, this effort for this community outreach or community engagement. And I feel like that, 
it's just kind of saying, this is what we do here. You should think it's great as well. And then kind of the conversation ends. And for the communities that they tend to be reaching, whether they're minority communities, like you mentioned, or, or um, queer, queer people of color, all that kind of thing, black indigenous, um, there isn't any kind of reciprocity or conversation that validates and gives value and worth to those communities. And if there was a true exchange of, of ideas and of culture and of going back and forth, then we would be able to see not only opera and ballet and these like older art forms really evolving, like how they have in the past, I don't know, like opera is a, is a 400 year old plus canon, right? And back in Verdi's time, back in Mozart's time, people were putting on new operas all the time. They weren't putting on Handel all the time. But today we keep on putting, we keep putting on Mozart and Verdi and Puccini and they're great, they're beautiful, they're, they're, they're great works of art. But we're not focusing on like the stories of our communities today and the, the incredible multiplicity and intersectionality of our communities. And that like even in Toronto, we have over 50% of people who do not identify as white in Toronto alone. And then you think about, okay, who accessed that census data, right? Who could access that? There's probably more like 55 or 60% when you think about it. And I'm taking this stat from 2016 and now it's 2020. So like if we were actually having these rich conversations and sharing art and learning from all of these, these beautiful cultures and, and perspectives, we would be able to see this, this art form evolve. And then it's about putting resources and funding and value into evolving the art form. And then I think we would be able to see like, like perspectives of, of maybe this more closed-mindedness, this more fear, this more like, just gotta get the money and put it on the table um, kind of attitude, like this capitalist attitude, hopefully diminish because then we would be seeing the value of, of art being able to play a, a large role in everyone's life and not just like the select few like the select starving artist and the select elite who can afford a hundred dollar two hundred dollar ticket or it's just something that we do because it's like i'd rather talk to you about my business than being at this premiere kind of thing or my business project you know it's it's shifting the mindset of like what is art doing for people in society is it serving just five percent of us or should it be serving a hundred percent of us and how can we serve make it serve 100% of us. I don't know, that's a, it's a huge cultural shift that I'm kind of proposing, but who knows, maybe we'll get there one day. But do you also feel like um, it is more difficult for a non-white person in this sort of theater opera setting to be able to speak up or voice their opinions? I think so, because I think I'm going to speak from my experience, in order to access opera, ballet, theater, this very Eurocentric colonial art form, especially opera and ballet, that you have to allow yourself to kind of be whitewashed and like mm -hmm. colonized and like mm -hmm. view it from that lens, because that's the, that's the easiest way in, or it's, it's like you kind of need to drink the Kool-Aid in order to be like, yeah, I love this, or 
be able to have enough money to pay for voice lessons or piano lessons and then go to whatever school, you know, like, and that's something that I've definitely realized about myself, that there is this internalized racial inferiority and racial superiority that it's like, I've been holding on harboring for so long um, to kind of like, to validate myself or, or to keep me in close proximity to opera, which is really in close proximity to whiteness. And so it's something I, that, yeah, yeah, sorry, go ahead. So I come from Singapore, right? Singapore was mm -hmm. um, colonized by Britain for a good hundred, hundred over years. And, and after they left, we sort of gave an independence, but I think the trade-off was that, you know, we would have British education. So I grew up with Annie Blyton's, you know, dreaming of like teas and cottages. And, you know, this is completely, completely different and opposite to my, my physical reality, which is like in the tropics, you know, you don't have snow, you don't have, you don't drink hot tea because it's, it's freaking hot. And, <laughs> and then, and then I went to London, I started with fashion and I realized it was, it was really superficial. And then it was, there's so much pollution in the industry, but I was really interested in wearable art and how the art that you wear on your body can have a sort of interaction with the body that is wearing it, the person that's wearing it, which gives it sort of a meaning. And then if you can bring it to public spaces, that creates a sort of interaction that brings art out of um, exhibition spaces and, and brings art out into the public. And mm -hmm. then I en ended up into my sort of performance design and practice course at Central St. Martins. And, and it's, it's quite a, I, I guess it's pretty white dominant sort of discipline as as with I guess a lot of disciplines but but still that was UK so I guess there's that as well and then and then learning theatre and and even in the most sort of contemporary the most sort of interesting innovative performance art practices it was mostly predominantly white and then I think there is also that sort of like because of my education because of the sort of culture that's that was shaped in Singapore, because of our colonial history and past, the the whites are always seen as you know more superior in society because that's the way it was. You know they exploited us, but they didn't really tell us about it. And then people were just uh, super poor, and and the people who had spending power during those times were were the colonial masters, and and that sort of carried on forward. And I think also there's a there was a certain part of me because I was re receiving. Western education and it was all about you know equality and stuff I was also in parts I guess rejecting my traditions mm, I, I wouldn't say it's a good or bad thing because it's, it's complicated there are certain Chinese traditions that's also stemmed in a lot of uh, sexism which I which I don't stand for at, at all but then that that sort of like all of those emotions sort of fueled me into into this state where when when I was in London and I was in this this discipline that was actually very like in terms of history in terms of context is predominantly white and it's like you know all about Shakespeare and it's it's got this I don't know this air to it that that made me feel like oh I, I have to be like this to produce this kind of art and and then I remember because because you're in a UK and then you're a person of color my professor would be like so you know, why don't you do something about Singapore? Why don't you do something about your, your ethnic um, roots? And I was like, I, I was super against it. Like, I, I don't, I don't, I can't even explain why, but, the, but deep inside, I've got this emotion. like, no, I don't want to do it. Why, why is it that now that I'm in the UK, like immediately I'm being seen as I'm being branded 
by the color of my skin and that to make myself unique in a place like this, I have to go back and, and you know, like dig on and, and almost capitalize on, on this exotic mm-hmm. minority sort of background so that mm-hmm. I have a voice that's going to differentiate me from everyone else. And this is like a past that I, I don't even want to go into because there, there were reasons that I, I left Singapore. And, and I guess like a lot of those reasons, I needed time to really understand and internalize what it was because a lot of that was was also this 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 friction and this conflict with um, the way that things are there or or the state, and I was I was in no way at a point when I was in first first second year of university ready to actually talk about that because it was something much bigger that I would have to really uncover. It was something that was systemic, mm-hmm. and and th- that was just this. I don't know. I feel like even right now, uh, until we got to this point of conversation, I never really brought up this experience and, and thought about it that much before. I just remember at that point mm-hmm. in time, I was like, why is it that I've come all the way here to London and I'm just really trying to learn and I'm trying to be myself, yet I'm always being brought back to like, oh, you are Singaporean, you are Asian, you are you are ethnically Chinese, like this is who you are, this is what you are. And that almost like, it, this almost defines defines me, mm-hmm. and it's like even when I was in Singapore, there there is this duality as well because I'm I read a lot and and the sort of Western education, the sort of um, progressiveness in terms of in terms of gender, and then me growing up from a super traditional family where you know my grandmother never received education, she was match made, um, never got to see how her spouse looked until the the day of the wedding, and wow. and then she was you know she gave everything to the to the family because that was what she was conditioned to do. She didn't she didn't have education. That was what she was told to do. Like you have to be cleaning the household, you have to be taking care of the kids, you have to give everything, and she gave everything. And there were moments when I just felt so sad for her because I felt like she was given too much and probably taken advantage of too much. But it was that sort of structure, that sort of family and traditions where you don't question it as a woman. And I don't blame her for telling me when I was younger that you need to learn how to clean, you need to learn how to take care of household because that's all she's ever known. But mm-hmm. but me sort of going through that that sort of upbringing, that sort of family context, and then... And then also in many ways, I was fighting against it because for me, part of being Chinese was also all of these traditions and values that I don't believe in. And that was in part suppressing women. Mm-hmm. And and I, I used to have fights with my brother because he would be like, you're Chinese, like, why are you, why are you against it? I'm like, no, I'm Singaporean. There is a difference. And then when you go out into London, it's, you know, when you say that you're ethnically Chinese, immediately they assume that, oh, you are, you're from China. But that's not that's not the same. You know, it's like, it's like Canada, Singapore, you know, you say you're Canadian, you don't, you don't say that you are like, I don't know, British when your ancestors came, came 100 over years ago. And there is this like duality and I don't even know where I'm going with this, but I just, yeah, about space, right? And, mm-hmm. and then at some point, I think also being in the sort of um, setting where most of your classmates are white and and even if we have like a group of Asian students, they don't, I think collectively, 
the Asian groups don't really speak up as much. I mean, in part, it could be language, but in part, it could be culture as well. And I remember, like, my first few, um, my first two years, especially when I was in London, I was really shocked because uh, it came it came across as super forceful. We were having discussions and it was almost like people were fighting and arguing in class. And, you know, in Asia, I mean, we have debates, but you, you raise your hands and you, you have proper sort of like conversations that's not, yeah. And, and mm-hmm. I guess because discipline is such a big thing, right? You're, you're expected to listen when you're supposed to listen and then you speak only when you're sort of allowed to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and then I, I remember this, um, this, this discussion in class, this German guy was like, speaking about some stuff and then someone came in wanted to counter his point he wouldn't let the person speak and he was just like you know almost shouting over everyone else and it was like and then afterwards some other Italian girls were like really angry and then it just became like this huge argument and I was so shocked I was just like oh this is this is stressful (laughs) (laughs) wow and then I'm also just thinking about you know space like spaces for people to speak and it's I feel like a lot of times, you know, lecturers would say that, oh, you know, Asian students are really quiet, they don't speak up much. But then I think it's more than that, you know, it's insecurity, uh, confidence in terms of language. And language is power, you know, when you when you have full control of a language, you have full power over how you can vocalize your views. And, and if, if you're not conscious of that, you're not aware of that, and you're not patient of it, then people who are not confident in that language don't feel safe enough, comfortable enough to speak up. And then there is also cultural difference. And I think all of these factors add up. And especially when you are, if you're in an environment where it's, you are a minority, there, there are even more barriers to speaking up. And it's all these subtle psychological elements that, that adds up to, I guess, in a way, a sort of oppression. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. And just like microaggressions, you know, that are embedded into the culture that it's like if if because of certain gender because of certain racial background or or ability around the language or even accents you know like like audible accents too like that is that's something that we just privilege especially that british accent you hear that and it's like oh it's very easy to assume oh that person must be edu- well educated or smart you know but just because you have a certain type of British accent that comes from a certain part of London doesn't mean you're better than the person next to that person, you know? Anyway, no, it's fascinating you talking about all of these things too, because it's like, when you are that, you, when you are one of few like racial or, or, or not even racial minorities, just of a minority, it's like people auto- automatically want to assume that you will speak for that whole group, you know? But that's completely unfair because everyone has unique experiences, even if they are of the same racial ethnicity, you know, or even if there you have a group of five queer people or something, right? It's, it's so completely unique. And I'm sorry that all that crap happened to you, you know, but, and I'm really glad that you're able to unravel and, and to understand more and more these days, especially like, like, like with this podcast, it's really cool. Mm. I think it's also it's also important to put it out there that you know this this journey that we take to understand what exactly it was that made you feel upset or doesn't sit with you I think a lot of times it's easy to just put it on ourselves that you know I, I'm being oversensitive like you know that's that's just totally what it was. totally and then 
and then when you try and vocalize it if you are if you're speaking to someone who doesn't understand it the first thing you get would be a sort of almost reaffirmation that you are being oversensitive that that wasn't an issue at all and then to take on that journey be super patient with yourself and understand that oh actually i i felt hurt in those moments and i need to heal from that and i need space to heal mm-hmm. and i think that's it's not an it's not an easy journey a lot of times i think it's it's also being able to listen and being able to hold space for people but what does it mean by holding space mhm well i think it's really as cliche as it sounds it's really putting oneself into that other person's shoes to really try to go there you know and true true active empathy i think like empathy can be kind of fluffed off as like oh you know it's good to be empathetic but like i was um doing a workshop with the north american taiko community about reimagining taiko so they were like anti oppression anti racism workshops just recently and one of the um uh kind of the leaders the mentors like one of the elders of the taiko community was talking about empathy as a verb and as an action and as a, like a conscious awareness and really doing more than just being like oh okay yeah empathy you know so that was really powerful and i think kind of like light bulby for people like it was like oh clicked there and active listening and and really listening and because we're not always going to have the answers, you know, and and just to keep listening and to and to allow for time for digestion, you know, with with these big issues, with these thoughts, these feelings, these experiences because they will come up, you know, unearthing them from the subconscious. And I just had one of those moments the other day about something that happened to me earlier this year that it was like, "Oh, it clicked for me." It's like why I reacted that way back then. Now I'm able to understand that and maybe change that behavioral pattern. for the future so it it doesn't keep hurting me in the same way that it had been so yeah i think we we don't necessarily always give ourselves enough time and enough time to to digest or talk about it or express it and and the time being that like you won't you one won't always have the answer right away yeah but you know I've recently been reflecting a lot about this. So like words like empathy, putting yourself in someone's shoes um and just you know being able to actively listen. These these are terms that are just so familiar for us, right? But then when I actually had to explain to someone who doesn't know what these mean, I realized like how am I supposed to explain that? And then I started to think, you know, empathy does one person have more empathy than the other what makes empathy and how how do you how do you fully explain that and then i i realized also in the last couple of years that depending on your experiences right like if you've had more bad experiences than someone else in your life there is a higher chance that you will be able to relate with someone who has been through a lot of really bad stuff in their life more than the other person who hasn't been through that because you've got personal experiences that you can you can draw from and this is not to say like one is better than the other or whatever and and I wouldn't wish ill on anyone else to have to experience all of that stuff but it shows you know i remember when i was in france um 
I, I was speaking to this uh, good friend of mine. Um, so he's French, he's white. And then I was, I was explaining about how as, as an, an Asian woman in Marseille, I feel discriminated. I felt, I really felt discriminated on the streets and I, I get harassed. And um, he, he didn't want to believe it. He was like, no, fear, you know, um, that's just, that's just a part of society. That's not all of society. I don't think my friends are, you know, there are many people who are not. But then also his sort of context and circle, it's predominantly white as well. And I, th I feel like not having as much of an access to, to people of color who are minorities in a certain space or not having enough of these sort of experiences being talked about. And you know, he's a really nice guy, but I think also there is a part of him that didn't want, didn't want to accept that mm -hmm. because he wanted to believe in the good of people and in humanity. But then I've been in situations where really I just go like, why, why are you treating me like this just because of my skin color and because of how I look? And as much as I would like to see the world the way that he does, I cannot because of my experiences. Mm -hmm. And and this is just based on the the fact that you know you being born a certain gender, a certain a certain skin color means that you have a lot less of certain negative experiences than someone else of a of a different makeup. And and as a result of that, not being able to actually understand what this person has been through. And even if this person explains to you, sometimes there is this inability to be able to understand because it's so foreign. Like it, you don't have any of your personal experiences to draw from where you can be like, oh, I, I can empathize with you. I can relate to you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I find it really challenging to talk to people too who are, whether, one, these experiences, they just, they just don't have. And then two, that refusal to believe that, that wanting to hold on to this like really naive little bubble of society is not too bad kind of perspective. Um, because it's, they're, they're just completely not awake, you know? And that's really sad and frustrating and and also to to have that that person as like a colleague or like a good colleague or a friend, like it's really hard. And and I just hope that with conversations, like if if um, as a friend, you know that that person will eventually be able to just shift their perspective and just see it from a different angle. Um, and it's too bad that it would probably have to take an experience of of harassment or oppression or some kind of um, inappropriate kind of experience that that puts him down to be able to see these experiences that are ha been happening for hundreds of years and that are happening so much that there's so much violence still happening to black indigenous people of color like people who are queer people who are differently abled you know um, people who are trans like it's just it's just not right and that that yeah that refusal to, to look at that is really is really disheartening and I don't know I just hope that with with many patient conversations 
you know, one would be able to bring them into a bit more illumination of like the realities of society and the realities that systemic racism and systemic oppression is real. I don't know, I, this makes me think about different family members that I have who have different political beliefs and, and live certain lifestyles and um, yeah, it's hard, but I just have to keep speaking my truth you know, with them, even if it makes them feel uncomfortable or even if they don't vote that way or believe that way, you know, or they only have white friends because, you know, that, that's, that's their life and that's their lifestyle. Um, but I don't know, like this, this idea, like through the lens of love is something that I've been talking a lot about with my, with certain collectives and also with my partner and that if we can try to do everything through a lens of love and of honesty and of honor that maybe there might be another experience that they'll be having with someone to be able to understand not necessarily me and our personal relationship but like some maybe something else that will be able to click for them and start them on their path because i also need to respect that everyone is on a different place in their journey in terms of like unlearning all of this conditioning, this whitewashing, this colonial elitist kind of like attitude. Yeah. Hey everyone, this episode's a little long, so I've split it up into two parts. Part two is already up. We talked about awareness, blind spots, self-care, and many other really interesting topics. Stay tuned. <laughs>